By the way, we are now a part of the Salesforce family. That's why we have a new home and a new look. Otherwise, you can expect the same great stories about success. Let's talk about perfectionism. Different shapes when you're painting. So each brush is like... For artist Lori Goldberg, the pursuit of perfection is a form of creative inspiration. I have to think when is enough enough. I have to use my own personal aesthetic choice. <laughs> it's about envisioning an endpoint. So I'm looking for a chance. And then letting that vision drive her. First of all, I start off with myself painting or drawing. But in that pursuit of perfection, it's hard to know when it's time to wrap up. Oops. Call it a day. That's why I need more than one painting happening at once, or else it just drives me crazy. Each stroke of the brush, each jot of the pen, well, does it get you closer to perfection? Or is it time to just stop and say, perfect enough? I'm, I'm probably the most imperfect, perfect person. <laughs> if you're sitting waiting for something to be perfect, you'll never do anything because nothing is ever perfect. And even the things that I've done that I felt are the most perfect, that doesn't guarantee success. It's often the things that are rougher around the edges sometimes that resonate with people because people aren't perfect either. You're listening to Waste No Potential and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. Perfectionism. By now, most of us know it's a trap, an impossible quest that inhibits real innovation and leads to burnout. But resisting perfectionism is easier said than done, especially when you're doing work that really matters or that you just love. It's just so tempting to put in a few more hours, weeks, years, trying to make the website or the report or, you know, your great novel even better than it is right now. The problem is if you just keep working on the same project, the same piece of work, well, you never get to move on to your next inspiration. And that thing you've been working on so hard, well, it may never see the light of day. So how do you know when something is perfect enough? How do you resist perfectionism and just launch already? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Well, I care. I've got, like, if I do that, I'll dump the board game on the floor. Okay. Okay, here we go. Here's how I like to think about the curse of perfectionism. Folding. Folding card. <laughs> it's here. like a board game. You know, one of those games where you advance along a path to reach your goal. You have 30 seconds to name three shows or three show tunes with colors in the title. If you get too obsessed with one particular step on the path, one project you just can't let go of, well, you get stuck and you stop moving forward. Pretend you just won a Tony Award. Add 201 extra fan card to each future show salary. Your acting okay. is reprehensible. <laughs> so who better to talk about how to get unstuck? Who better to help us understand perfect enough than the guy behind my family's favorite board game, Be a Broadway Star? Ken Davenport, I am a theater maker or a producer and writer of 
Broadway shows. I played that game like twice a day for two years. Like that was a very heavy road. It's so brilliant. Thank you very much. We're very happy with it because it allows people to touch Broadway no matter where they are in the world. That's why we created it because we wanted to give Broadway fans and theater fans a chance to be involved with Broadway uh, from wherever they were. Ken's grasp of Perfect Enough goes way beyond keeping us moving along the path of his fabulous board game. His whole career is a master class in momentum. In the forward energy that comes from caring deeply about your work and then taking the risks that come from following that passion. And can you explain what it is that a theatrical producer does? Well, it's a very good question because I think a lot of people wonder about what a producer does because they think that Broadway is some this, this unique mystical, magical place where, and they don't know how it all happens. And the fact is, and this has been one of my missions, is to demystify what producers do. You know, we don't walk around in like uh, tuxedos and tails and top hats and have lunch at Sardi's every day. Like that's not it at all. In fact, a Broadway producer is very much like any small or medium business person. We are the CEO of our own startup. Ken's passion led him into a career that many of us think of as extremely risky, the theater. And by its very nature, working as a theater producer, which is what Ken does, well, it means learning to live with perfect enough. We're a high-risk industry, there's no question. But there are many high-risk industries out there, right? Opening a restaurant is a high-risk industry. Uh, Starting a tech firm is a high-risk industry. Have you ever seen a moment on stage where an actor broke or something happened and the, uh, the actor kind of like tries to save it but can't and then they lose it and the audience loses it with them? And now these are the moments that we spend weeks and months and years trying to make sure never happen. Oh my gosh, please, set, don't break. Oh my gosh, actor, please don't flub a line. And then it happens and it's glorious. And the fact is that a lot of people will go home and talk about that moment forever and ever and ever because it was so real and so authentic and not perfect. Creating live theater is a leap of faith. You literally never know what's going to happen on any given night, which makes perfection impossible to guarantee. But that doesn't mean it's easy to know when a show is perfect enough to open. It takes a lot of experience, and a lot of shows, to hone that kind of instinct. Ken got his start very young. So my mother will tell you that I first kicked when she was watching a production of Godspell back in 1971, uh, a few months before I was born. My father was uh, an immigrant from India who came here in the 60s. He was part of that Indian doctor wave that came over. Um, and he married um, he married a Davenport. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Davenport is not my real name. I will uh, give you that somewhat of an exclusive. My parents dragged me to an audition when I was five years old for the local theater production company. And I did theater until I was about 12. Then I got too cool for it. Then I thought I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Celtics simultaneously. Like I was going to be that kid, right? Disney was going to make movies about me. Um, It was going to be great. 
And then I got rebit by the bug my senior year of high school when I saw Les Mis. And I really like walked into my school the next day going like, I'm doing this theater thing. I quit the basketball team in a scene like right out of high school musical. Like I got, I was practicing and a ball hit me in a place where guys don't like to be hit. And I buckled over in pain. The coach started making fun of me. And I literally said, well, you know what? I quit and I'm gonna do the musical. And I stormed off the, the gym floor. And I auditioned for the High School Musical the next day, got the lead, where I starred as Billy Crocker. And of course, my high school sweetheart played opposite me. My dad was the greatest encourager of all people, and especially myself. He was constantly pushing people to do whatever they wanted to do. I mean, look, I'm in the theater, and my dad told me to run to the theater. How many Indian doctors do you know that would tell their sons to go into the theater? The nurses would ask, are you going to be a doctor like your dad? And he would say, no, he's not. He's going to do what he wants to do, not what other people think he should do. Uh, and then I was already accepted to Johns Hopkins University and was going to be uh, on my way to be a lawyer. Um, but I ended up transferring to the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. And I took a history of American musical theater class taught by this professor named Jack Lee, who was an active working professional. He was music directing a production of My Fair Lady with Richard Chamberlain. And he recommended me for a production assistant position, you know, gopher, getting Richard Chamberlain his fresh roasted turkey sandwiches that had to be cut off the bone and walking dogs in a blizzard, like all the stuff. I still don't know why he recommended me. There were 15 people in the class. I was good in the class, but I wasn't great. I forgot my homework one day. But all that I can say is I was so passionate about theater, I think you could see it all over my face. And I think he saw, like, this, this guy has what is needed, which is so much passion and love for it. When the industry, like, knocks him around, and it will, and it has, and will in the future... He's just going to keep on going. But I just wanted to be in the room where it happens. Um, but uh, yeah, I was um, one of those folks that when I got to Broadway in the 90s, uh, someone said to me, if you want to work in this business, you should change that last name of yours. It was a friend as well. And, you know, at the time they were probably doing me a favor because I'm not sure what would have happened um, if I had kept it at the time. But I consider everyone's lives, we have like a slideshow of our life, like a this is your life, if you remember that old game show, of moments that changed our lives. So I had the pleasure of working with Hal Prince on three occasions. And if you don't know Hal, Hal is one of the most successful theater makers ever. It's hard to imagine a better mentor for a life in the theater than Hal Prince. From stage manager to producer to director. He's won like 147 Tony Awards. He is the ultimate guru for, on theater making. The legendary producer and director who was behind many of Broadway's most successful shows. From Fiddler on the Roof. Merrily We Roll Along and Sweeney Todd. To Cabaret. And of course, his biggest success, The Phantom of the Opera. I have been a hardcore Hal Prince fan for something like 30 or 40 years now. So I couldn't wait to ask Ken what he'd learned from working with a true theatrical genius. 
he wrote a very famous article in the 90s about how there were no more creative producers, people that came up with ideas. He was afraid the industry was going more to just check writers. So when I read that article, I ran up to him and I said, Hal, this, this is what I want to do. I want to create shows. I want to produce them and create them and write them and do all these things. That's what I want to do. And I said, can you help? And he said, yes, but not now. I'm in the middle of teching act two of Candide. Like, leave me alone for a minute. Just give me my coffee. Um, but he, he invited me to his office. And he, he did this with a lot of people at the time that he, again, I think, saw that passion written on my face. And he let me pitch him every show I ever imagined. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which has been made into a musical, right? I pitched him a show called Mole People based on a book called Mole People um, about the population that lives in the, um, the subway tunnels in New York City. And in the midst of all that, he stopped me and said, Ken, do you remember the first show I ever produced? And I said, no. Ken, my first show was The Pajama Game. West Side Story was my third. Don't come out of the box trying to produce West Side Story. Be lucky if you get the pajama game, ran for a couple of years, made people happy, made money, got me started. It's not what I want on my tombstone, Ken, but it got me to West Side. It got me to Phantom, Follies, like all of it, right? That's where I started. So how that day said those words, and I'll never forget them. And I went home and started working that very moment on a little show that I had come up with the idea for years before, but I never did. And because I didn't think it was important enough. I wasn't what I wanted on my tombstone. So that was my first show. It was a show called The Awesome 80s Prom, you know, that most people out there won't know about. So let me tell you what I did. I've, I've recorded about 200 episodes of podcasts with very successful theater people. And I've learned that there's one common phrase with all of them. When they started out their career, they all said these words, I didn't know what I was doing, but they figured it out. And as I got home that day from that meeting with Hal Prince, I'll never forget it. I remember thinking, I wanna create this show. I'm gonna do something. I don't care what it is, but I don't know what I'm doing. I just know I want it like a live John Hughes movie. And I want it to be based on improv. Okay, well, I need actors. Prince gave Ken some early wisdom on how to make it in the Broadway world, and a lot of it had to do with that perfect enough mentality. We have a hard time setting deadlines and goals and all of these things, right? So what I do is try to get the market to set them for me in this, this thing that I call serving the tennis ball. I try to put things out into the world so that some I serve a tennis ball in the hope that someone's going to serve it back to me. And then I have no choice but to hit it back and forward. So what I did was place an ad in backstage looking for actors. Serve me, hit it back to me, actors. And my desk would be filled with pictures and resumes. So I would open these pictures and resumes, separate them into two piles, ones that I liked and ones that I didn't. Call the ones in for an audition. I guess I have to have an audition now. We had an audition. I guess I have to call them back. We called them back. I guess I have to cast them. I cast them. I guess I have to have a first rehearsal. We had a first rehearsal. 
And I swear to you, if you know this place in New York City, 520 8th uh, Avenue, Ripley Greer Studios, I rehearsed there to this day. It was 2003, September. I was at the McDonald's down below reading a book called How to Improv 30 minutes before my first rehearsal because I had no idea what I was going to do with these people that I cast. None. But I had set these timelines. I had served the tennis ball. They had hit it back. I just kept hitting it back. And then I found myself in this position. So we talked about proms and we talked about the 80s and we talked about high school. And then I said, let's try this. And we tried this and we just kept doing it. And sure enough, we had a script and then we had a, I found a space and then it just got up. And the next thing you know, it's 10 years later. And the amazing thing about this serve this tennis ball idea and like putting things out into the world, like anyone that has, if you have theater people that want, like have a script or send a note to five friends right now saying, Hey, you want to come over tomorrow and read my script? That's serving it. Right. If you haven't, if you're out there and you have an idea for an app, like I know the perfect app, go right now onto Fiverr or Upwork and post a description of that app and to try to get bids on someone to build it for you. That's serving the tennis ball. You'll have people from all over the world telling you how much it would cost. Then you figure out how you get that money. That's what it's about, right? It's collaboration. It's what the theater is based on. And I think all success is based on figuring out how you you kind of hack that, that problem we all have in our brain of being too responsive, uh, responsible for ourselves. And that's when Ken started Davenport Theatrical Enterprises, his first theater production company. You're listening to Waste No Potential, a new podcast about incredible stories of spotting untapped potential. The show is brought to you by the good folks at Traction On Demand, and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to follow us wherever you're listening from. You can also find us at tractionondemand.com forward slash podcast. I started my production company in 2004 when my first show, The Awesome 80s Prom, was already in production. So here's a here's one of these stories that like, you know, it's that old like, do not try this at home, please. This is not the way to do it, but it's the way I do it. And a lot of entrepreneurs do it. You know, we build the plane while we're flying it, right? We're building the show or the company while we fly it. And I think that's what happens. And the fact is, I created the Awesome 80s Prom. I found space for it. I put it up in this trial production. I sold some tickets and it was working. I knew this was a business, but I wasn't running it like one. I was depositing the ticket sales in my personal business account. Like I took some investment money to my personal account. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have anything. And it was working. And I knew I wanted to flip a switch and move it to off-Broadway. And I, I called my lawyer and I said, I need to raise a little. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, really. And my lawyer looked at me and was like, when does the show open? And I was like, oh, it's been open for six weeks. And he was like, what? He's like, yeah. He said, what company are you using? What, what LLC name? And I was like, uh, I didn't do that. And he was like, OMG. And sort of rushed to put all this stuff in place for me. Um, but that's, I believe, how... I don't recommend that. But in theory, that's what all entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs do. We are obsessed with the product. We want to make the thing. And then the business kind of catches up after that. 
Ken was now at the point in his career where he could focus his full attention on making theater. But it's not like that was a linear path. His original plan of being a lawyer? Well, just like any of us, he faced the temptation to pursue a safe career instead of following his passion. The irony is the dreams that I have, you have, all of your listeners have, right? are so much, could be so much more rewarding if they were executed than any task your day job boss makes you do. Yet why is it if our day job boss says, do this by four o'clock, you'll do it. But when your dream boss, you, says, will you finish that chapter of that novel you're working on by four o'clock, it's harder to do. You finish that report for your boss by four o'clock, great. You're going to get the same paycheck that you got last week and the 52 weeks before and whatever that is. It's mind-boggling. And I face the same problem because, frankly, you finish that chapter, you finish that novel, you get that novel out in the world, you could be the next J.K. Rowling. So that that's what I did. And I can tell you I've just done that over and over and over and over, over again in my life to the point where I'm telling you this, I was on stage at Radio City holding a Tony Award in my hand and giving a speech and literally going, how the F did I get here? Ken was rising through the ranks of Broadway. He received an award for Outstanding Off-Broadway Musical for his show, Alter Boys. He got an award for the revival of the musical Godspell, the one he kicked through while still in utero. That was just the beginning. As the producer of the show Kinky Boots, he won the 2013 Tony Award for Best Musical. That Tony Award reflected all kinds of behind-the-scenes talents, like an instinct for luring in audiences and building word-of-mouth buzz. Ken was one of the first producers to send emails to audiences after a show as a way of keeping them engaged. He became the first producer to live stream a Broadway or off-Broadway show with his production of Daddy Long Legs. And his inventiveness extended even beyond the theater itself. He invented Be a Broadway Star, which is the board game I told you about earlier. And he launched a podcast where he spoke with other theater makers. Ken's knack for innovation had a big impact on a problem a lot of people in the theater community really care about, but struggle to address. Accessibility. Now, look, theater tickets are expensive. Hal Prince said that that Peter, people will be saying that theater tickets are expensive or have been saying theater tickets are expensive since they were five bucks. These are the New York Yankees of the theater. They are the best in the world at what they do. But I urge people to look around. And part of the accessibility is like, what can we do to get people in the door so that they can fall in love with it? Because that, and that's been the problem. What we've done a poor job at is communicating that those things exist. So we need to communicate to all markets, to all people, that there are more economic ways and that you are welcome here and tell the stories that they also want to see and hear. Broadway shows can be really expensive to attend. And there are other barriers to enjoying theater, especially if you have a disability. That's a Broadway barrier Ken started thinking about when he saw a particularly inventive theater production during a trip to Los Angeles. Can you can you give us the visual on on seeing Spring Awakening and its Deaf West production? 
I remember watching the first 15 seconds of it in LA and going, oh my gosh, I got to move this to Broadway. And then a feeling of like, I, other people need to see this. It was, Sandra Mae Frank was playing the role of Wendela. And in the first few moments of that show, she steps forward and she starts to sing, sign, Mama Who Bore Me. And in, in this production, Yet there, she had a singing half. She looked in the mirror and there was a singing half of her. Uh, and it was Katie Bach. And that moment was just a different moment for Spring Awakening and resonate and just imagine for me this woman that didn't have a voice, but she has an internal voice, of course. And it was just so riveting and, and Sandra May is just a brilliant performer. And I was just so captured in the way that I hadn't been captured previously. That production of Spring Awakening inspired Ken with a new vision for Broadway. One that made the music and movement of a musical accessible to people who are deaf, as well as bringing a new dimension of performance to people who are hearing. I still remember seeing a number from that show on the Tony Awards. The cast included both hearing and deaf actors, and it used American Sign Language almost like choreography in a form that added depth and beauty, even for a hearing audience. The Deaf West production of Spring Awakening became a huge and influential hit. With his Spring Awakening director, Michael Arden, Ken soon moved on to his next big revival. Yeah. So Once on the Silent is a show that I fell in love with when I first moved to New York. Um, and I'll never forget it. Like I went in to see it and she, spoiler alert, the protagonist dies at the end. And I remember leaving the theater on a high, like floating. I walked home from 42nd Street to 16th Street. I'll never forget. I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing blue shorts, a long white Oxford and a tie. I don't know what that outfit was, but it was the 90s. And I um, it's like floated home. I didn't really walk, I floated home. And I remember thinking like, why am I so happy? She died in the end. And after Spring Awakening, where I worked with the director, Michael Arden, which was brilliant, opening night, I turned to Michael and I said, serving the tennis ball, Michael, what do you want to do next? And before I could even answer, like finish asking that question, he said, once on this island, smack, he hit the ball back to me. I said, I know the authors. I was the company manager on Ragtime. I'm going to call them tomorrow. Hit the ball. Lynn Ahrens hits the ball back to me. Come to meet Michael Arden. We meet. And slowly but surely, it just eventually, like a snowball rolling down the hill, it builds into something. And then you have a Tony Award winning Best Revival. I saw that production of Once on This Island, and I can tell you, it's the kind of theatrical experience that burrows its way into your soul as surely as sand gets between your toes or into your swimsuit. These wildly inventive revivals, productions that reimagine shows that were seen on Broadway 10 or 20 years earlier in a totally different form, well, they're a great example of what can happen when you embrace the principle of perfect enough, which, after all, is an exercise in humility. Perfect enough is about recognizing that each thing we create only ever exists for a moment. 
if for no other reason than because time moves forward and whatever we create will be seen in a different context by different eyes if it survives for even a few years or a few months. But you won't know if you've created something that survives the test of time, much less something that's useful enough to build on or reinvent or revive, unless you put it out there. That's what it means to risk being perfect enough. And it's a risk you just have to take if you want to accomplish anything, whether it's winning a Tony or writing a blog post. And, and how did you feel when you, when you won the Tony for that revival? What was it like to stand on that stage? Yeah, I can't remember a, a moment of it. I mean, I, I, I really can't. It happens. It's like the thing that you dream about and wish for since I was 16 and watch those Tony Awards. I, too, have VHS copies of every Tony Award from my youth uh, sitting in a closet somewhere. And it, it's just such a rush. Um, but I frankly, I don't recall any of it. Just like one moment, just staring and just kind of speaking. And uh, it's 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 incredible because of course it's what they say like this is what to be recognized by and I should say the show right it's a, that show especially is a real collaboration uh, and I'm just the producer I mean they let the producer accept it but it's Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Aarons and again Michael Arden and Camille Brown and Anne Marie Malazzo who do the vocals like theater is a collaboration they just let me hold it and speak but it was all of us for sure. So what's your equivalent of being on stage at Radio City? Honestly, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's getting that promotion you've been working toward. Maybe it's your dream of taking a trip around the world. Maybe it's finally publishing your first short story. Whatever it is, I promise you will not get there by pursuing perfection. You'll get there by following Ken's advice to just serve the tennis ball and letting that move you forward. Okay, 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 wait, here we go. Uh, Whether that means moving you forward through the game of life. Okay, ah, here's a good one for you. Look, look, look. Or the game of Be a Broadway Star. You show up to your audition and realize it's not the golden age revival you thought, but an edgy rock musical. You have 30 seconds to transform your outfit to look edgy. Or if you if you make it, gain four fan cards and roll again. Yeah, it's really that. I mean, that sort of the tennis ball idea is that often, especially the irony is, it's that the more intelligent some for the person is, often the more time they will spend thinking about the solution, right? Trying to come up with that perfect answer. Oh, that's not going to solve it perfectly. What about the? Oh no, I have to get back to the drug. Like, no, start the process. Start the process because, again, it's in the doing that the perfecting happens. Like, you need to start doing the things. Or if you're like, oh, I wish, you know, I always thought this would make a great musical. It's based on this movie. Bam. Send out an email trying to find the rights to this movie. Do the, Are they available? Or I want to produce a new play. A lot of people come to me. I want to be a producer. Go on Facebook right now and post this. I want to be a producer. Any any playwrights out there? I'll do a reading of your play at a rehearsal studio next week. First person to raise their hand, I do it. Just do it. What I want to put in there, I think I need a bit more color. Today, my guest was Broadway producer Ken Davenport of Kinky Boots, Once on This Island, and Groundhog Day. 
And special thanks to artist Lori Goldberg. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and this is Waste No Potential, brought to you by Traction On Demand with production support from JAR Audio. When one door closes, another opens. It's a classic saying. But what do you do if that first door is slammed in your face and you're desperately trying to feel around for the handle of the second? 2015 was the hardest year of my life. It was just, I felt like I was getting kicked in the gut over and over and over again. You know, like this dark, soul-searching, reckoning period of my life where I kind of had to come to terms of like, well, what matters? On our next episode, join me when I speak with iconic West Coast musician and Juno Award winner Dan Mangan about his own story of searching for that second door. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review and tell a friend about us. Until then, thanks for listening. The Waste No Potential podcast was created by Traction On Demand, a company acquired by Salesforce in April of 2022. All Waste No Potential podcasts can now be found at salesforce.com slash resources slash podcasts.